Well, it's very good to be back with you guys. It's been a year, actually, since uh, Lisa and my family and I were with you guys last. And I think this last year, it was still one service. So now we're into two services. This is the first time kind of being with you guys now in two services and in the nine o'clock service here. And just to kind of remind you guys, actually, CCC has become kind of a church home away from us, uh, for us when we come back to Wilmington. So it's always good to be here. But I always kind of forget, too, when I come here, how cold it is in this place. And I am like, I was saying hello to some other people. They were like, I'm, I'm burning up. I was like, oh, my gosh. There's a difference here. I've been, like, rubbing my hands. So... For, but for those of you guys who don't know us, again, thank you for that introduction, Pastor Paul. Uh, Lisa and I and my family, we've been living in the Middle East for the sole purpose for about 20 years now of sharing the life, the death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ to Arabs, particularly Arab Muslims. And a little bit more, if you're kind of in that know and kind of interested, it's not just Arab Muslims, it's Arab Sunni Muslims because of where we live kind of thing. Um, but we come back to Wilmington because I'm from Wilmington. My parents are still here, so every time we come back here, we base out of here, and I kind of grew up here. And if you've been with us or been here for the past two years, each time that I've come back, we've been talking about a theme, and, but you, don't, you, don't, you wouldn't have to have been here, and if you haven't been here, that's okay. It's not a big deal. But just letting you know, there's a connection of each time, and it's been about this idea of missio dei, a Latin phrase. What does that mean? means the mission of God. It's kind of applicable. Somebody lives overseas and works overseas. The mission of God. And so today we want to kind of continue that, but we're going to take it from a little different angle. And always with this, though, I want to start with a story that sets the stage for this. A little bit of story from where we live. About two, three months ago, somewhere in that window, I had a colleague of mine from down south in the country we live. He called me and he said, hey, Lance, we got a new brother. What does that mean? We've got a new believing Arab guy. A new brother, but he's having some trouble with his family. So we really need some advice, and we need some thoughts about stuff. So I said, sure, bring him up. He's down south. Let's get him out of the city for a while, come up to where we are, about three hours away from where they are. And I said, and at the same time, I'm going to bring a friend of mine, another brother who has been walking in Christ for about 10 or 15 years, also an ex-Muslim who has faced challenges in his, with his family, his community, and with the state. So let's all kind of get together and let's talk and pray and share. And so he brings him up. Now, this guy's name is Muhammad. Now, I'm not, that's his real name. I'm not giving anything away. About 99% of men guy, guys in the Middle East are called Muhammad. Okay, so like Muhammad comes up. Muhammad's 20-something. He's uh, single. He works in IT in the telecommunications area. And he also comes from a family that is a part of the Islamic Brotherhood. Now, if you don't know what that means, the Islamic Brotherhood is a, it was kind of movement in Islam in the early 19, uh, mid-1900s, started in Egypt, and they call Muslims back to a very conservative, fundamental way of living life in a community. And they're very active, and they're very fundamental. So at this point, we sit down, we're talking, and my friend, who is a believer, and, and Muhammad start talking, and it's very common when these guys get together that they're talking tribe. Who's your tribe? Where do you work? Kind of what was the degree of conservatism of your family that you've kind of coming out of? So they're kind of doing that, and we're listening. 
And after a while, we start talking. So tell us a little bit about what's going on and what you've been facing. And Muhammad is facing, he's already gotten beat a couple times. He's living somewhere else where his family doesn't know where he is. And his brothers, his uncles, his father are looking for him. He's getting text messages, basically a lot of threats, a lot of kind of ideas of like, we're going to tell the wider community about this if you don't come back. Um, Or here's a deadline and we're going to put an end to you if this doesn't change, kind of these kind of quotes. And so we're talking to Muhammad, and we're also kind of talking to, okay, well, if this is the situation, how do you then, how can you approach your family again? And there's ways like vocabulary, posture, your mother's still speaking to you. Send some messages through your mother to the whole rest of the family. Let's talk about this. With the whole purpose of what are some of the avoidable persecution realities. Like there's some things that can be avoided, some things can't. And as we're talking about this, I notice Muhammad is getting more and more frustrated as he's listening to us. You can see it in his, uh, in his body language. And suddenly he's like, okay guys, I, let's just stop. And he says, I know you guys are trying to help. I appreciate it. And probably if I had to do some things over again, I'd do it over again. But in the end, I believe Somebody in my family, in this context where I am, as now a believer in Christ, I have to stay, walk through this fire in order to communicate and to testify to Jesus, period. And I was looking at this guy, he's like 27, knowing what is coming his way. And he doesn't know exactly what's coming his way. And I was just like, you know, yeah, I hear you. There's some avoidable things. But at the same time, I was like, man, this guy, this guy's been touched by Jesus. No one's going to step into this type of reality and future uncertainty unless something has significantly changed in his life. And it's actually this conviction and this passion that Muhammad was expressing in this scenario that is kind of about the engine of Missio Dei that we want to talk about today. And so today we're going to talk about the engine of Missio Dei. What keeps the mission of God moving forward into new places, into new communities, and new people, languages that hasn't been over generation, generation, and generation? What is that dynamic and the combustible material that is moving that forward? And it's been going on. What is that? Well, I think... We read Acts 14, 1 through 13, and there are glimpses in, in Acts here that start to touch on this. So we read this, and let me give a little bit of a context again. Here, this is now very soon after the Lord has ascended into heaven. The Holy Spirit has come down. The gift of languages has happened in order to get the word of God out. Peter has now preached two sermons and thousands of men and women have come to believe in Jesus very quickly. And Peter and John are going up to the Temple Mount to continue teaching, to continue preaching, and they meet a man. They meet a man on the side of the road, up the path to the the Temple Mount, and he is disabled. In the midst of his disablement, Peter, through through the authority given to him through Jesus, he says, stand. And the man stands. And his disability is healed. And 
to being very unhappy about this. The leaders are unhappy about the miracles. They're unhappy about the teaching in the name of Jesus. They're unhappy about the thousands of people who are now following. They grab Peter and John, and they put them in jail. And the next day comes, and they're coming to make a decision about what to do with these two guys. And they've asked them a question. By what power, what power or what name have you done this? And then we pick up in verse 8. Let me just read verse 8 through 13 again. You read along with me. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we're on trial today for a benefit done to a sick man, as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and all the people of Israel by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. By this name, this man stands here before you in good health. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, and which became the chief cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. And now in the translation I'm using, it says, Now as they observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. Now, what is this combustible material energy around Missio Dei and the mission of God? I think it's found in the observations of the Jewish leaders at that moment and in the commentary of Luke, the author of Acts, inspired by the Holy Spirit. So what did the Jewish leaders see when they saw Peter and John standing there before them? Well, it says that they observed confidence, boldness, and some other things. From the outside, they saw something else. They saw untrained, uneducated. They probably saw blue collar. They saw a certain dress. They saw probably darker toned skin because they'd been out a lifetime of fishing out on the Galilee. They probably also heard a little bit of broken grammar, a rural dialect, and probably a little slower draw. Something in that typical characteristics of people at that place that are easily overlooked and unremarkable. But at the same time, they also saw something from within, a confidence, a boldness, an authority that emerged from as they spoke as they interacted with the elite of the day. And as the elite started to listen and watch and observe, they understood that this was because these men had been with Jesus. Now, actually, to their surprise, and they didn't know this, they were interacting with the primary element of Missio Dei that would drive the next 2,000 years of change in human history, and they didn't even know it, but they were front row seats of it. What is it then? It's in verse 13, the first observation. Men and women who have been with Jesus. Let me put a different word. Men and women who have encountered Jesus. Men and women, individual humans who have encountered Jesus. Jesus. 
Now, let me develop this idea of encountering. Encountering is not the idea of knowing some stale historical facts about Jesus, knowing when he lived, knowing where he lived, knowing what ethnicity he was, trying to pick out maybe he said this, maybe he didn't say this because of this idea or that. No, encountering Jesus is to intently look at him. Intently to look at his actions, intently look at his words, to take them in, just like if I'm talking to Pastor Paul and he's giving me a new idea. I am intently thinking, am I bringing this in? I'm opening myself, my opinions, my thoughts, my failures, my life experiences, everything that has come with inside of me, I am honestly listening to Jesus so as to assess myself and my life based on his words and his actions at that moment. Men who had countered Jesus that way. And the Gospels, the New Testament is full of men and women and crowds who encountered Jesus. Let me just, let me pick on one. Remember, remember Zacchaeus. Now, church people know Zacchaeus as short and in a tree. That's what they know of Zacchaeus, short and in a tree. But actually in his day, let me tell you what Zacchaeus was known as. Zacchaeus was known as a traitor. He was known as a sellout. He was known as taking hard-earned money from his own people and giving it to the oppressors of his land and doing it strategically. And he did it strategically because he's a chief tax collector, so he manages others, and he's trying to optimize their profit from their own people. And Jesus comes into his town. And Zacchaeus wants to see him, so he does climb a tree because he is short. All right? So then, but as Jesus walks in, Zacchaeus encounters Jesus in a tree. He encounters him with Jesus locking eyes on that tax collector. And he says, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm coming to your house, and we're going to spend time today. Out of all the crowd, he was in Jericho, and he sees him, locks him in. And he goes, and he spends time And at the end of that interaction, Zacchaeus says this. He says, if I've defrauded anybody of anything, and he had, wasn't a question. Of course he had defrauded them. He says, I'm going to repay four times that which I took. Encountering Jesus is to, to engage and to look at him and see him looking back. What do I mean by that? It's actually what we sang and what we kind of did the first part, is that when, when we encounter Jesus, if anyone encounters Jesus, Jesus is allowed to look into the inner core of who we are. And at that moment, we see who Jesus is. We see his power. We see his perfection. We see his authority. And there is a weight of who he is as God. Yet at the same time, what comes into view? The cross, the resurrection, mercy, grace. And after all that, guess what? He's still standing there, like with Zacchaeus, looking, locked in on the person who is encountering him with love and compassion in his eyes. When a person encounters Jesus, change happens. Let me tell you a little bit of a story. That happened a few few years ago. We came back, similar kind of what we're doing this summer, and we got together and had dinner with uh, some high school friends of mine. hadn't seen them for a while. Their kids were there, our kids were there, and so as dinner's going on, I thought, oh, let me 
let me entertain and let's tell a little story. So to, to the kids of my friend, I said, hey, let me tell you a little story about, about your father when we were younger. Now, I don't necessarily recommend this, as you're going to see, all right? So I started this story by saying, you know what? I had to clean up the mess of your father one time. And, and, and now this story, it dealt with a girl, dealt with a guy, dealt with a fight, and me having to take somebody to the hospital at the very end, okay? So, but as soon as I got into this story, I saw that he was not very comfortable with this, just from body language. And at the same time, his kids were on the edge of their seats, kind of looking back and forth, him and me, him. And they want to know every detail. So at this point, I'm like, okay, I, I, I caught the... I caught the uh, the vibe that was going on, I was like, okay, let me summarize this quickly. Let's keep high-level details here. And, uh, and so I finished the story. Um, and, at the, and at the very end, he, uh, he you know, in that kind of awkward end, uh, he, he said, yeah, you know, he kind of acknowledged the situation. But then his response was profound. He said, yeah, but that was B.C., and I was like being dense as I can be sometimes. I said, what does B.C. mean? And he was like, that was before Christ. And I was like, yes, that is exactly right. Because this guy, he was nothing the same after he encountered Jesus. Change. What did they see when they saw Peter and John? They saw two people who encountered Jesus, yet at the same time, they, were not, they hadn't just encountered, they were transformed. They were transformed because of their encounter with Jesus. Men and women who encounter Jesus are transformed. And it is actually transformed men and women that drive Missio Dei, the mission of God. Transformed men and women. Now, why is that the case? Why is that the case? Because, number one, transformed men and women have experienced change personally in Christ. They have lived, they have experienced change personally. They, ha- they can speak a testimony of change. They can tell a story of the power of Jesus in a moment, in a reality of their life that changed everything or changed very specific aspects of their life. Uh, they, this, is, this is a dynamic here that happens. If you, if you were to be where I live in the, what we call the global south, which is usually Latin America, Africa, Middle East, Asia, and you come across a believer and you say, why do you believe in Jesus? Why did you believe in Jesus? Let me give you some examples of what they will say. They will say, well, my child was very close to death, and someone came and prayed in the name of Jesus, and they recovered. Or our family, in the midst of warfare and troubles, we were going to lose everything, and we had no protection, and somebody came talked to us about Jesus. We cried out to him, and he arranged the situation and pulled us out of that. Or sometimes they'll say, our family, our community has lived under the oppression of evil spirits for generations. And it was not until the truth of the cross and resurrection that we actually had a mechanism to pull ourselves away from the fear and oppression of these evil forces that have done immense damage to us over the generations. Let me, tell you, uh, let me tell you another little quick story about testimony of change and how this process of encountering happens. Two Yemenese sisters, one named Sarah. 
Sarah came to Lisa's clinic that she runs. She is, she is pregnant. She's getting ready to have birth. She give birth. Um, she is in her 20s. She is fully veiled. She wears a niqab, which means you can only see her eyes. So you only distinguish her by her eyes or by her voice, okay? So she comes in. Um, she's married. She married a man who her family did not approve of. And so when that happened, they kind of cut ties. Now, in the midst of some, some situations as well that happened, by the time she comes to give birth, her, her husband's left her. So she's now by herself. She gives birth. And in the follow-up new baby born, you know, new bo- newborn baby visits, Lisa and the other doctors de- determined that she is severely depressed. And not just severely depressed, but she's depressed to a point where she is not feeding her newborn at all. And there's no one else around. And the situation is getting more and more desperate for this baby. Okay? So the, ne- so the next clinic day, Sarah comes in. Lisa greets her, but the woman says, oh, I'm not Sarah. She couldn't tell because she's fully veiled. I'm not Sarah. I'm Reem. But I'm Sarah's sister. And Lisa hadn't met Reem before. And so she starts talking to Reem, and she tells Reem the situation of Sarah and the newborn. And when she's telling her, Reem says, kind of unfolds a story that she wasn't expecting. She says, well, you know, my husband and I, we haven't been able to have children for 13 years. If you would connect us, we would be willing to take the the baby and really provide for the baby. So Lisa works together, gets, the, gets Sarah and Reem together. They, they actually meet. They agree. Reem and her husband take the baby on. There is provision for the baby. In the midst of that, there is prayer. There is opening up the scripture to Reem and her husband's family, Sarah's situation. And at this point, there is provision for the baby, and then they start walking together, encountering Jesus. Now, they have not yet come to believe in Jesus. But let me tell you, when that day comes, and I'm speaking in faith for them, when that day comes, they're going to look back, and it's going to be an act of provision for a newborn that Jesus brought together for them to encounter them. See, there is testimony of in real life situations. And testimony has a catalytic effect. Let me, let me explain this, a catalytic effect. In these situations, people, their first step is they understand that Jesus has power to heal. He has potential to, to provide. To, he's a holder of truth. He's a protector. And once they understand that, then with more introduction with the scriptures and with the believer, then they start to realize he's not only that, He actually has power over sin and shame that has been accumulating, and there's been no way to get rid of that. And once they learn that, he's not not protector anymore. He's now Savior. He's Redeemer. And they believe in that, and they viscerally feel that release of that sin and shame. And that is because of Jesus' now work. Then, continuing on in Scripture and time with people, what do they discover? They discover that He's not just protector and Savior and Redeemer. He has been from eternity. He is God who is incarnate, who has come. In theological terms, we call this an ascending Christology 
versus a descending Christology. But this is the power because in every step, their testimony gets wider. Their, their glorification of Jesus gets better. It gets wider. And it, the picture is bigger and bigger as they come to know who Jesus is. They encounter him in real life. That's the, one, that's the first reason, because transformed people have experienced change personally through Christ. And as a result of that, the second point is this, is that transformed people have vision and faith for others. And it's as, why? Because it's as blunt as this. The person who has testimony of change after encountering and being transformed by Jesus looks at someone else or situation and says, if he did it for me, he'll do it for you. He will intervene. There was nothing about me. There was nothing about my context. There was nothing about my situation that deemed him to transform and encounter me. So if he did it for me, he'll do it for you. And at the same time, that is a life perspective of the transformed person, which says things that are, situations that are, people that are, they do not have to remain. Vision and faith. They look at the world that says, not as what it is, but what it can be through Christ, because I have seen that in my life. And that's exactly what Paul said, or the author of Hebrews, okay, of what the definition of faith is, right? Hebrews 11, now faith is the assurance, assurance of things hoped for, conviction of the things not seen, Transformed people have vision and faith for others. Let me tell you how this played out a little bit in my life with someone. Another Muhammad that I know um, in a city that we lived in, mechanic, very steak and potatoes guy, okay? Doesn't like change, very kind of with his family, always lived in the same place, will die in the same place kind of person. We were, we'd been talking for many a months about the prophets. Typically with Muslims, we start with Ab- Ad- uh, um, Adam and we move through the Old Testament to get to Jesus. We don't jump straight into Jesus. Talking through the prophets and what that was and building up. And, uh, we, and we were out on my porch one time and we were speaking. And he, um, he had a financial situation in his family that was quite significant. And we start talking and he says, stop talking to me about the prophets. I'm sick of hearing it. He said, I'm not a prophet. I'm a mechanic. Those guys were good, worthy men. God interacts with them differently than people like me. Stop talking to me about them. And at that point, I knew this was a faith moment. Not a faith moment for him, a faith moment for me. Because at this moment, he didn't have faith. And what he was saying was obviously, I'm not worthy. God will not intervene. He does not care about my life. This is not who he is. He only does that with certain kind of people. That's what he was saying. And so at that point, I said, listen, okay, at this moment here, I know you don't believe this. I disagree respectfully. I believe he does know you. I believe he knows your situation. And here's what we're going to do. Right now, I'm going to pray with you. I'm going to pray for this. And guess what? God is going to hear my prayer. And he's going to intervene in your life. And why can I say that? Because I'm his son. He has saved me. I'm in his family. And I have that confidence. And, and so I prayed. So we sat down. We're only like five, piece apart, five feet apart sitting together. And he's looking at, and I'm praying. I usually pray like this with my knees down. 
And uh, I, I, I look up, and he's just, his eyes are right on my eyes. And he says, did he answer? <laughs> and so I kind of laughed. I was like, well, he will. I don't know how. I don't know when. Fast forward six months. Six months, we're having some, we're having some time together. And at this point here, uh, he start, I'm at his house. We're on the top of his house. There are flat roofs there. We're standing up there. And he starts recounting a story, and his house was at the heart of this financial issue, which he was going to lose or try to sell. And he starts relaying the story of four or five times. He either tried to get the paperwork together, paperwork was lost. He tried to get somebody to buy it. They said they would. They never showed up. He went through all these things, and he talks about he was driving his car just yelling about this in life. And now we're standing there. Another event happens in this time, which we don't have time for. And uh, it resolves this financial need. And the whole time I'm waiting, I'm like, he's going to draw the connection. He's going to draw the connection. It's not happening. <laughs> he's not drawing the connection. So I, at that point, I had to stop him. I was like, hey, we need to stop. Now, do you remember six months ago on my porch? If you don't remember, I'm going to tell you exactly what happened on my porch. You remember what I prayed? Somewhat. This is the intervention and encountering of Jesus in your life, Muhammad. And we have continued to walk together in this. But that was me having faith and vision for him because I have been transformed by Jesus. Now, the last thing and the, and the last point about this is the third aspect is what did Luke observe about Peter? In Acts 4.8, it says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, and then he answered. And the third is, is this phrase here, filled with the Holy Spirit. It's significant for the engine of Missio Dei. Because at this point, what this, this is an instance here that we see in Old Testament and New Testament where the Holy Spirit at certain times will enable, embolden, strengthen individuals for a certain task. And here is what's happening. And basically, transformed people make themselves available to the Holy Spirit to be used. And that's part of driving Missio Day. Transformed people don't just want to be encountering Jesus just one time. No, they want to be daily and continually conformed to him. They want to be asking. They want, they're, they're positioning themselves that says, I am grateful for what you have done. I also, Lord, Father, orchestrate my comings and goings so that I can be a part of someone else's life. For just as I have been transformed, they might be transformed. So, let me tell you one more story about how this, this happens, and we're going to bring this to an end. Ethiopian woman comes into the clinic. She is also um, pregnant. Lisa interacts with her. She is probably trafficked or in a very disparate situation. She's not married, but she's, preg she's pregnant. She's 23 weeks pregnant. She's miscarrying and completely hemorrhaging horribly. And immediately, Lisa takes her and heads her to the hospital, which she has an agreement with for all the birthing of the refugees that come through the clinic. And uh, they looks to admit her for the treatment. And the director says, we can't take her. What do you mean you can't take her? She is single, not married, and pregnant. Islamic law, we cannot take her. 
We can't let her in. Now, Lisa feels very strongly, a.k.a. the filling of the Spirit for a moment, okay? And with very bold pressure on this director of admissions, who she knows, who she has sent many a people her way, paid a lot of money for their birthing, she uses all of that goodwill, she uses all the Eastern pressure tactics in order to put pressure to make this happen, the Ethiopian lady gets admitted. She has the surgery off the books, but she's admitted and it happens, okay? At the same time, Lisa says, oh, my father is fluent in Amharic, the Ethiopian language. Let me call him. Dad, would you please record a prayer and scripture on WhatsApp? I want to send it to this woman. He does that, sends it to her. She listens. She is just moved by this. Then she also says, you know what? There's a Sudanese pastor who's going to relate to her well. She gets him, brings him over. He visits her in the hospital. During those visits, the gospel is being shared. Prayer is happening. And then he says, you know, I know another Ethiopian woman who is a believer. Let me get you connected to her. They get connected. And this woman is walking and encountering Jesus. Because Sometimes it's not just the individual who makes themselves available. It's a group of individual believers that God brings together in order to move forward Missio Dei. Transformed people make themselves available to be used by the Lord. So in the end, concluding this, what the Jewish leaders get when they brought Peter and John before them? Well, they came face-to-face with two men who had been transformed by Jesus. They didn't know that. They also got two men who at that moment were empowered by the Holy Spirit. They didn't know that. And then right next to them was another man who encountered Jesus, and he had been healed of a disability. There was no way they were going to win this at all. They had a front seat row of the engine of Missio Dei, and they had nothing to say. Acts 4.14, when they saw this. What do we get as we consider Acts 4, 1 through 13 from today? I think we get challenged by what the Jewish leaders saw. They recognized somebody as having been with Jesus. They recognized that in their speech, their conviction, their choices, that they had been with Jesus. You can't walk away from Acts 4, 1 through 13 with saying, have I, have I encountered Jesus like this? Have I honestly and sincerely, truly considered his words, his interactions, his death and resurrection? And I know there's many people in this room that will say, yes, I have. And, and, and with that being said, know that you hold that testimony of change. You hold that testimony of power that has been in your life. And also be encouraged by this. You are the driver of Missio Dei because you have been transformed. There's also people that will say, no, no, we're not sure, or no, it's not for me. And all that to say, I would say to you guys, if you're in that state, is at any time that if you're interested in truly encountering, engaging Jesus, it's just going to be like Zacchaeus. You have that desire, he's going to lock in on you 
and give you that personal attention that you want. But can I also say this? It typically happens two ways in our time of history of how somebody encounters Jesus. There's two ways. One, you either know someone who has been transformed and encountered Jesus, and you walk with them, and you ask questions, and you get the details, and you figure things out, or you disagree, but you're in relationship with someone who knows Jesus. Or you get a Bible, electronic form, hard copy form, or you sit down and you read the, the words, you see the actions of him, and you engage that. But actually, the best is the combination of both, is if you know somebody and you have the word. And here's what I would say at this point. If there's anybody who says, yeah, I'm kind of there and I'd like some help, Pastor Paul, Pastor Joseph, myself, there are many others here. They'd love to help you with that. So don't make yourself known to them. They would love it. And the last thing that I would say is, what do we get from this and challenged? is for those who said yes, the challenge is this. Are we available to be used by the Holy Spirit? Do we daily ask for the arranging of our comings and goings to be orchestrated by the Father for the purpose of glorifying Him? If we choose to step into that, I promise you that very quickly, the Lord is going to orchestrate customized situations for you where you are the best person at that time, in that relationship, in this epoch of history, where you are the person that he has to help somebody else come to encounter Jesus. So what is the engine of Missio Dei? It is the transformed life of a single human who has encountered Jesus and has empowered by the Holy Spirit. Nothing more, nothing less. My hope is that may we all encounter Jesus. So let us pray together. Lord, we magnify and we praise you. You are worthy. You are the one who changes lives no matter where we are and in places we find ourselves. Lord, thank you that you transform lives. Thank you that there is nothing else like you in regards of transforming lives. You bring new life. You move us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your glorious son with forgiveness and redemption. And in that, new life comes about. Lord, lead us and enable us, we ask, into the future. May we look to you, and in that, we will glorify the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.